This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast, a platform of free education on how to have the best end-of-life experience possible by knowing how to live your best life now. With experienced hospice, oncology, and wellness nurse, Suzanne B. O'Brien. And welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. I am your host, Suzanne O'Brien. Today, we have a fascinating show. You know that we've been doing a series called Good Grief. And for those of you, obviously, who've been following my work, you know that end of life is such an important part of our life's journey and something that right now is not going well for most people. So we also need to discuss about grief. So if we're not having our end of life's going well, planning on it, all that goes with that, you can imagine that we're not doing grief well either. And so we have a series called Good Grief, where we really, again, want to bring the awareness that all of us are touched by grief and tools that you can use that will help you in your grief. And so again, we have a very special guest today. Thank you so much for being here. I am gonna do a little introduction and then we will get right into the conversation. This is Justin Yap. he's a PhD. He is a clinical psychologist and associate professor at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As a member of UNC's Comprehensive Cancer Support Program, Dr. Yap offers psychotherapy, assessment, and consult liaison services for both pediatric oncology and adult oncology populations in North Carolina. Okay, Dr. Yap also co-leads the Widowed Parent Program, and that's something we're gonna be talking about today, which offers support groups for parents who have lost a spouse spouse or partner and are raising children on their own and conducts research to support grieving families. He co-authored the group Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagine Life. And we're gonna talk all about that today, it's amazing. Which weaves together contemporary thinking on grief, adaptation and resiliency with the true story of the men from their first support group. So thank you so much for being here. We have so much to talk about, and I know my listeners are just going to love this interview. Well, I really appreciate the invitation and, uh, and, and glad to connect with you and, and do this interview today. Great, fantastic. So I've been following you for a while and just so impressed from day one with the subject matter that you have been supporting. So I have to ask, okay, the first question that I have is, how what gravitated you towards this population of you know widowed parent parenting and people who are widowed it's a great question so it really came organically uh came out organically from my my day job here so as you noted earlier i work in the cancer hospital here at the university of north carolina and so it's a psychologist and so what i do during the day primarily is meet with patients who have cancer and their loved ones and it was it's been about 10 years ago now that it, it so happened that I was meeting with several uh, relatively young mothers um, and their, their spouses and a little bit with their kids. Um, and each of the mothers had uh, advanced cancer. 
And sadly, uh, three of these moms all died around the same time. And I had come to know the husbands a little bit during this time, of course, working with them at end of life. And it was really during one of our team meetings one day that I just brought these families up and we got to talking about them. And uh, my colleagues said, well, you know what, you know, what are you, what are you offering to those men now that they have lost their wife and are raising kids on their own? I said, you know, I, I don't know. I'll look to refer them to a support group. And naively thinking that such support groups existed here in the Triangle in North Carolina or really anywhere. Yeah. And it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that really this population of widowed parents, there is almost zero services out there for them. And that seemed like a real, uh, just an incredible oversight to us. Um, it didn't take much imagination to imagine what these men were going through. And so my colleague, Don, and I said, well, if it's no, no one's doing anything in this field, why don't, why don't we get started? And so we put together a support group. We got those men. We were able to find a few others. It's not exactly easy to get guys to, to join a, a grief support group. Uh, but we got these guys together. We had seven to, to start out with. and we put together a support group and Don and I kind of thought we knew what we were doing and we thought we knew how this was going to go. We had a, a six session, uh, six session intervention planned out. Um, and we were pretty quickly dispelled of that notion that that, that was going to be sufficient. And so this first group of men ended up meeting together for nearly four years. Wow. And yeah. And so they, these um, huge fans of these guys, I, I, you know, month after month got to see them, uh, you know, really process with each other, uh, their own grief, support each other in their own grieving process, um, kind of go there with the difficult issues and confront uh, really uncomfortable truths along the way. And in a way that I don't think that people, especially men, do that often. Right. Um, and these guys will tell you, they never would have done any of this kind of stuff had they not been together. And really, they actually joined, the, most of them said that they joined for their kids' sake. Right, like if they were going to be, uh, you know, only parents, and they all felt like they were not going to be equipped to do this, they might as well join some group that was going to help them help their kids. Uh, so they didn't really come for themselves. the The kids were the ticket in the door. Yeah. But they got there. Um, I think they stayed for themselves. Um, and so from that, that really opened our eyes as to how much work there could be done, and just the you know, it wasn't the first support group I'd ever run, but it was the most powerful. And so after that, we're like, we, we, we need to commit to this. And so we started building this program and now we conduct research. We've published um, all kinds of manuscripts. We have a website resource for widowed moms, widowed dads. Um, we've written the book that you mentioned, um, done a TED talk, all these kind of things to really bring attention to and offer resources for uh, the slice of the grieving population. Oh, I'm, I, I love it so much because I always will say to people that there's not one end of life experience that is exactly the same as another. And, you know, this is the same way. There's not one grief that's going to be the same as another because of all the elements that are around that. Yeah. And, and I can't even imagine, Justin, that it's so hard for people to grieve just in general, that if you add on these intense other elements um how much more difficult that is so i'm so grateful that you have this group yeah so we we learned that on day one after these after their wives had died these men faced three broad and huge challenges one is 
their own grief for losing the, their life partner. Uh, two is figuring out how to, how to run a household on their own and manage the kids and manage the schedules and feeling completely overwhelmed by that. And then having to help their children grieve the loss of a mother. And each of those three things in and of themselves would, 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 be, yeah. would be enormous. But to have all those three things, and they're all present on day one, I, I often go back to the story, uh, Steve, one of the fathers in our first group, uh, his wife died uh, at home um, during, during the late night hours. Mm. And she died around, I think, four or five o'clock in the morning. And the kids were home, but they were asleep. And he went into their room after a little while. He, he'd only been maybe an hour after his wife passed, woke them up told them the news, which they had, had known was, was coming. And then his little, I think, three or four-year-old, and about 10 minutes later said, Dad, I'm hungry. And he had to go make breakfast, right? right? So it wasn't that he got to just go in his own corner and grieve. Wow. He, had, he was doing his own grieving. He had to begin to shepherd his young children through their grief and then still had to, you know, make eggs and bacon and, and get the kids on their schedule. So it was within an hour or two of his wife's passing, all those three worlds collide. Okay, so let's even, let's start with that because I'm a little bit even overwhelmed with that whole thinking of that scenario. So yeah. those three categories and I, how do you then help to walk or support them through those three things? And can I ask you, when their wives were ill, heading up to the point of the time of death, was there any preparation? Was somebody helping them prepare for those three categories? Or maybe there wasn't enough time to even address that. That's a, a great question. So um, one of the husbands, or one of the fathers, his wife died relatively quickly from a sudden um, viral infection, and it really snuck up on him in a week, and, and she had passed. Wow. The other six, their wives had cancer. Mm -hmm. And you know this is this is really what I do most of the day is work with people who have cancer, and a lot of those people unfortunately have, or some of those people at least have difficult prognosis. So in a lot of these, you can you can anticipate the death, which of course is is difficult in all the obvious ways, but it also allows for an opportunity, right, to prepare for this. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot easier to think about theoretically than it is to actually do in real life. Because what I see in a lot of my patients, and I, I think these fathers would say the same about their wives, is that it's it's certainly possible, but it's really hard to balance the, um, you know, kind of the hope and the optimism, and I'm going to power through my treatment, and I'm going to, you know, I'm sick and I'm throwing up, and I need to I need to be optimistic, and then on the other hand, plan for and account for the possibility or in some chance of the likelihood that you're not going to survive, mm -hmm. and that's certainly possible. And the people who I see who uh, I think cope best and help prepare their families for after they're gone are able to do those two things, mm -hmm. right? Keep hope, keep pushing forward, keep going through brutal treatments, and at the same time, be able to talk about the what ifs or talk about the likelihoods and help, as we say, help pass the parenting baton from a two-parent situation to a one-parent situation. Wow. And um, you know, thinking back to some of the dads in that first group and some of the mothers and fathers who've worked with since, we we hear a lot of them say that their spouses certainly knew that they were going to die, 
but it's pretty easy to put off talking about that, right? It's pretty easy to say, we'll, we'll get to that. And it's hard to bring up with your spouse these issues because maybe he or she doesn't want to talk about it. And so kind of a conspiracy of silence can take place mm -hmm. and people don't talk about something. And then sometimes it's too late before you realize it's too late. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true. I think when people have um, cancer that goes to their brain or sure. other situations in which they're not cognitively sure. as available toward the end and that window of opportunity is closed. And what we've heard from the moms and dads and what we found in our research is that um, a lot of parents who are dying and their kids never say goodbye to each other. And this is, in fact, our research has found 59% of parents who have advanced cancer and certainly are aware that dying is a possibility or a likelihood or a certainty, um, never say goodbye to their kids and never kind of have that sense of closure is kind of an overused word, but that sense of having a meaningful conversation or writing letters or somehow planting the seeds for continued bonds to, to sprout up after, that doesn't happen as much as it should. And what I do in my job here is try to get that to happen. And sometimes I think I'm successful, sometimes I'm less so. It's, it's, it's tough work. And it's really tough when you have a kid, right? You're a mom or a dad and you have a seven-year-old. Yes. And you think, you know, I just need, I just want to get my son or my daughter to 18 at least so they can launch them. And um, you kind of feel like you're failing, lo losing your kids and failing. And it, it doesn't, I think, you know, parents say, I know it, I know I'm not failing my kids, but it feels like I'm failing. Sure. A hundred feels like I'm abandoning my kid and I'm abandoning my spouse. Yeah. And that only compounds the guilt during an already difficult time. Yeah. So a couple of questions for that. So um, for me, those conversations at the end are so pivotally important to that positive yeah. experience of end of life. It really is. Closure, I understand, but even just the reality of, and anything kind of the exchange that you have. So for me, do we have we uncovered or do we know the why that those mothers or parents do not want to go into that? I mean, some of it is probably denial. Some of it is protection. Um, yeah, I, I think some of it is, you know, maybe kind of denial or, or just thinking that there'll be time to do that later or thinking that bringing this up with my kid is only going to hurt my kid, right? make him or her sad. And as parents, we're wired to, to protect our kids and not do things that are going to make them sad. Um, and they're just incredibly difficult. I think almost impossible to really understand yeah. unless you're in that situation, conversations to have to tell and talk with your children about leaving them early and prematurely. And that's, I, I think, especially with when it comes to cancer treatment at a time when you're maybe at home some, but in the hospital some and feeling poorly some days and not other days, and yeah. you're trying to let your kids live a normal life, but you also want them to spend extra time with you. I think it's just, like I said, it's kind of a conspiracy of silence. It's too easy to not have those conversations. And then before you know it, it's too late and they're never had. And you know, I can say the same thing with people who have lived have a full life and have that diagnosis at the end and they still put it off. 
yeah. and things. So, and, but this is, it's so very important for everyone to be able to go there because it unburdens the heart. And I, of course you can't force people, but I think there's such a great value from what I've seen that if we can help somehow on our end, support people in understanding what they're afraid of. Cause sometimes it's just, they don't know what they're afraid of. They just don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's right. And look, I, I have never personally lost a spouse. I've never had to have these conversations with the child. So I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't pretend to know and I, and I, and I don't want to judge and I can, I see in my daily work, how uh, excruciating that is. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But what we know is that it, it, it does, it's, it's a very giving act. And for kids who feel like that they were prepared, at least in some way, and were able to, to do things and engage in legacy activities with their parents, uh, that stuff means the world to them for a long time. And to the, you know, we've heard from uh, surviving husbands and surviving wives who eventually maybe when they want to start dating again or think about remarrying, those who had explicit conversations with their spouse who was dying and said, I want you to be happy. I want you to date again. And of course they say, no, 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 I would never think about it. And they say, yes, you deserve happiness. Mm -hmm. Son needs someone in the house. Anyway, you know, do it. Yeah. So those people, those spouse, surviving spouses who had those conversations, mm -hmm. the re-entering the dating scene is just, it's already hard, but that obstacle, which could be a big one, is already removed. And yeah. we've seen this in the interaction in our support groups where um, fathers and mothers have said, you know, simply, I'm, I'm jealous. I wish I had had that conversation. Um, I wish I had that explicit permission to, right. to move forward in these ways. Yeah. Um, and so that's another, another end of life area. But again, and I'm a psychologist and I deal with this and work with this. That's hard because it may be that the person doesn't want their husband to date again or doesn't want their wife to date again. I think it was um, a movie where somebody said that, said absolutely yeah. it was very funny because they right, right. say that. So it's, I don't it's, find anyone new. <laughs> right, don't, don't you dare replace me. Um, so it, it's hard, but yeah, the whole, you know, we do, you know, my work here at the hospital has a lot to do with end of life. And then our widowed parent program is of course after the death. But the bridge between those two, um, they are so connected. And what you do on the front end has great value and importance for how surviving spouses and children cope uh, with the aftermath. So it's, you know, what, what, what you do and what a lot of, I imagine, people who are watching this do um, is uh, the importance of it cannot be understated. Right, and I think it's great where we can have these conversations and be doing these wonderful platforms to help that because that last section is literally videotaped. We don't get a second opportunity to do it again. And right. so everything is critical for not only that person that's leaving, but for everyone that's left because they will yeah. carry that with them for a lifetime. And if it goes well, they remember that. If it doesn't go well, they remember that. Yeah, and there's no, there's no redoing it. Um, doing it. Um, and, and, and I think yeah. uh, kind of counterintuitively that actually adds pressure. I've had more than several parents tell me that they like the idea of writing letters to their kids for their kids to open at, you know, at graduation or wedding day or birthdays down the road. 
and they know how important that will be, but knowing how important it is adds pressure to get the letter right. Of course. And I try and, you know, try and depressurize that a little bit, but you know, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. It doesn't have to be right. a perfect letter that says everything. The, the key is that your child will open this on his or her 16th birthday and know that his mom or his dad was thinking about this day years earlier and will be another, another way to keep that continued bond going and, and, and to make it flourish. And that's really where the value lies, yes. not in, in, in getting each word right. But I've, I'm thinking of one parent uh, who was um, facing the end of her life and she said she went through several drafts and would write it and kind of scratch it out and ball it up and throw it away and write another one. And um, it was precisely knowing how important that was, that was actually for her was the obstacle. Um, so I just kind of got, went and got my laptop and I said, let's just hammer this out right now. Yeah. I'll print it out and you can write it out. And it does not have to be perfect. There is no yeah. such thing. Um, a lot of pressure and all lot of pressure, yeah. But yeah, I, I see the value of that. So, so let's talk about those three things that we started this conversation with that you found and in and of themselves, they're huge obstacles. So let's talk about those and how these gentlemen were able to move through those for this wonderful coming on the other side of things. And they're doing it together. So can we expand on those three? The three things I mentioned in my talk, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. So the, the first thing, so, you know, all, so we saw this in our first group and we've seen it in subsequent groups with men and women. There's nothing about this that's particular to uh, grieving widowed fathers um, or really I think it's anyone grieving a loss. But at some point, you, you know, these men had, had a vision of how their life was going to go. Right. It was that they were, they were going to be married. They were going to stay married. They were going to grow old with their wives. They were going to raise their kids together. They were going to retire together. That was just kind of the, the road that they had. That was the one that they had assumed was the road ahead. And then just out of nowhere, their wives died. And those roads that they had assumed were smashed, right? There was no, there was no game plan. There was no path forward. And for a long time, these men, I think, languished, right? And that's okay, I think, for a little while. You don't, you don't start recreating a new path on day one. I think you have to process, process and suffer and, and grieve. And, but for each of these guys, it, they were able to get to a point where, you know, they were able to get through the days a little bit less tearfully. They were able to get back to work, kind of that fog of grief seemed to dissipate. And there were certainly still bad days and certainly still really tough moments. Um, but things were not as bad as they were in the initial aftermath. And then it really came down to these three things you're talking about to help them move forward. And the first one was to reimagine what they wanted their life to be like, right? We talked about that there being this path that they were on, and that was kind of their life vision. And then without that, what is the path? And so these men, whether it was consciously or talking about it in group or just kind of figuring it out over time, had to reimagine what their life wanted to look like and whether that wanted to look whether that wanted to include dating again or remarrying or whether that wanted to include working in a charity or something that that was related to their their wife's death or it meant going back to work in a full time and diving into that or it meant 
focusing on the kit, whatever their new path would look like, that was worth spending some real time thinking about and mapping out. And that's tough, right? Because that takes a little bit of faith um, because these men already had a path and that path got snatched away from them. So to reimagine another path forward, knowing that that path is no more guaranteed than the one that you lost previously, takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of faith and courage. Um, and what helped these men along that path, that's kind of one, these men had to really reimagine what they wanted their lives to look like. Two, the lives needed to have meaning, right? And a lot of times this meant meaning from their loss and their pain. And that took all kinds of forms. And for these guys in our first group, a lot of what that meant was helping Don, my colleague, helping Don and I develop this program, right? They, they helped us build our first website. They looked at the first manuscript that we wrote and told us what was right and what was wrong. They really helped us figure out kind of help, how to help others. And that gave meaning and some purpose to their pain. It didn't make it okay. Yeah. It didn't make it worth it. Yeah. But it, it gave some meaning to that. And then they were able to help each other. And that gave meaning, right? These guys had been on the, you know, on the receiving end of support from everyone. But when they got together in that group, they could help one another. And that was important and meaningful to them. Yeah. Third thing is just connection, right? Connection with each other, connection with, with others. Too often, I think people grieve in silos. Mm -hmm. And especially men, uh, but not just men. Mm -hmm. We we think others don't know what we're going through or others can't understand or our experiences are, are different or weird or we're strange for thinking this. And so not having or thinking that way and not having language to talk about it or not feeling comfortable, sometimes I think we kind of just grieve within. Yeah. And we don't connect with others in a way that I think is helpful. And so what we saw, what we see currently in our group, we have a group tonight, what we see every month that we do these groups is the connection with other people who get your pain, others who have been in a similar boat and others who you can talk to and you don't feel like you're having to put on a good face for, or you don't feel like you're having to kind of, you know, kind of gloss over the hard stuff that you can really go there and you can say things that you might not tell someone else because they might not get it or you may even feel a little bit kind of embarrassed to think about, but you might say it in group and right. then three other heads nod around the table and you're like, oh my gosh, it's not just me, right? Okay, I'm not weird or alone for thinking that. And that kind of human connection, I mean, it's the basis of, I don't know, of society, right? I mean, that's kind of who, who we are. But I think when we grieve, we too often grieve by ourselves. And so these men were able to find a connection with each other and that was, you could pull them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all of them. And they would tell you that connecting with one another was, was integral to their healing. And it's not like these guys outside of the group meetings were, were best friends, right? right? Outside of group, some of them might not have had much in common at all. Mm -hmm. But when they came in, right, and we all got together and we, you know, we ordered pizza and we eat pizza, sit around and talk for two hours. I mean, these men went there and they connected and they, they cried and they laughed and they shared, you know, kind of thoughts they would share with no one else. 
they made jokes. Sometimes, you know, yeah. joking about grief is not something you can do with someone who doesn't get it. Yeah. Um, these men made jokes that they got and that helped relieve some of the pressure. So those three things, reimagining a new path forward, finding meaning in your life and sometimes meaning from your loss, and then connecting with others along that journey. Those three things were not the only three things, certainly, but three of the top things that really helped these men move forward yeah. in their lives. So love it, love it, love it. This is so much bigger than, again, just again, this very special group of men, but everyone can relate to what you just talked about and That's everyone right. can use these tools. So a couple things I want to highlight that you said is number one is that, you know, and this happens all the time with people, is that we assume we know what's best for someone, what they need. There's a time this goes across the board with everything, but there's somebody who has a terminal diagnosis and we think we know what's best for them. Ask them what they need. Just yep. like men, we're helping you to understand this program and book. What do you need? What did we get right? What would help? And that's incredibly powerful for us to understand that, especially because I think at end of life, people tend to feel that they've lost all control over their life, you know, especially in the very beginning, that shock phase. Right. No, give them back. They're in control. You have to talk to them. What can I do for you? How can I be of service to you? So I think that was incredibly powerful. And then the three things that you mentioned, and these are things that we're just not really utilizing in our world today, the sense of connection and community. And then also, we really don't give people permission to grieve. Right now in our country, you know, it's like two weeks and you should be over it. And people okay. literally say that to people. They say, aren't you over that yet? If they keep talking about it. And grief doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly powerful to have these groups where people can have that common human connection that binds them. Um, they understand each other. That's so important. Um, yeah. I, but what you said about grief is exactly right. We, we as a, at least in this country, United States, do not, uh, we do not have a good conversation about grief or a good understanding of, of what it's like. And, um, you, you know, I mean, if you ask, and I've done this when I go to conferences and talk or meet people, I'll say, you know, who here has heard of the five stages of grief? And most people will raise their hand and I'll, I'll list other theories and everyone's like, I've never heard of those. So we all kind of as a nation think that we go through these five stages mm -hmm. and that somehow linear and that that's all there is to grief. And, uh, if only, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. you know, that, uh, and I think, and, and I don't say this to, to, to bash Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I think she was a pioneer and she was a pioneer in the field, Absolutely. but we've learned a lot and we've moved past that, but our societal understanding of it has not. Um, and so that has, you know, we had one of the guys in our group um, who had one of the early meetings talked about how, he was trying, before he joined the group and got to talking about it, he was trying to organize his experiences through these five stages, right? Like, am I in the denial? Am I in the anger? Right. Uh, but today I feel relieved and this, where does that fit in? And, right. and so he was trying to really, you know. In a box. Where yeah. in a circle and it, it was never going to fit. Right. Um, so, but you know, where, where else could he go to learn about this? And who else could he talk to? We don't really have those resources as part of our our societal landscape and as part of you know like we talk about all the men who join the group 
um, we write about it in the book that the first night we joined, the first night they came, it was like really awkward and painful, not just because they were sharing their stories, but because none of them wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. And really the ice only broke when one of the guys said, you know, I, I want everyone here to know that I'm, I'm not really a support group kind of guy. And everyone's like, oh, I'm not either. I'm not either. So, but that whole thing that, that you have to break societal norms sure. and connect with others, you know, that's, that's, I, I wish it wasn't like that. And certainly I think it's better than it was decades and decades ago, but that's, those are glacial movements. Um, and I'd like for them to go a little quicker. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, I mean, for us, I think it's important that everyone understand that everyone grieves. And it's not just the loss of a person. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of grieving. There's also grieving before you even lose that person. Absolutely. You know? So, and we're all touched by that. So we're in this together. Like, it's something that, again, bring that connection and community. We're in this together. We don't need to hide from each other our feelings. In fact, and it's not weakness to share that we are in right. And the, th- the first thing that I always start out with it to let people know that there's not a right way to grieve. There's not one way to do this. And we may never get over that. And it's okay. But it shifts. It can yeah. change. And we'll do it together. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of grief books out there. And a lot of them, I think, are very helpful. Mm-hmm. But when we, when Don and I wrote our book, we, we really struggled and then ended up kind of avoiding the idea of writing any kind of how-to just right. because everyone is so different. So right. what we did was tell the story of how these seven men went through it yeah. and incorporated some contemporary thoughts on grief. And, and But it, I think the words how to, where you should, are nowhere in our book. Um, I yeah. think that we can learn from each other's experiences yes. and then incorporate that and help us grieve as opposed to you know, me telling someone you know, you should grieve like this, or you should do this, or you need to do that. Um, yeah, and give it I don't life. know if that's true for you. <laughs> yeah, it, I think that's so beautiful, and I think the best way that we learn is by somebody sharing their experience, and then you yeah. gravitate and take what you want out of that toolbox, what works for you. But I mm-hmm. think that's beautiful. So let's talk about the book and how people can find your book. Yeah, so the book is called The Group, Seven Widow Fathers Reimagine Life, and it's the story of those first seven men, and it's from the beginning uh, when they first met uh, toward the end, and we, like I said, we weave in uh, more general thoughts on grief and adaptation and resiliency, post-traumatic growth, Um, and so, and we really try, and we broaden the themes out so that it's not a book for widowed fathers, it's a book about widowed fathers, for anyone who's grieving a loss um and we've been really heartened by the feedback that we've we've received since it came out a couple years ago um and it's a quick read it's uh you know both my my co-author don and i you know we've we've each kind of started enough books and then kind of lost interest on page 300 and we're like you know what we don't want to write a book that people don't finish so we want to write a book that people finish so it's it's a good size but it's not too long Um, And one more thing, all the proceeds from the book that Don and I get, we put back to our program. It's, you know, we're, we're the authors, but it's really the men's story. And they were giving enough to allow us to to write about their story and actually insisted that we use their real names, insisted that we not sugarcoat their pain and their grief. And we insisted that we were not going to 
sensationalize or exaggerate. We want to tell it straight down the middle so that when people read it, they nod their heads and think, yep, that's me, or I, that makes total sense. Oh. Um, so anyway, so all proceeds from the book uh, go back to support our program, a little bit toward our research, mainly just supporting our support groups um, and website organization that we run. So um, that was, the, the men insisted that we use their real name, their real stories, and we said, well, we're not doing that. And if, you know, if we do that, we're not keeping a penny. Um, and so that, that was our agreement with the men. And so that's what we stuck. That's a beautiful agreement. How are yeah. they doing today? How are the, there, you know, it's, we've, um, we had a reunion. We meet every so often, every year. So for you, we had a reunion scheduled two years ago and in North Carolina, we got, we got about that much snow, which around here is enough for people to lose their minds. <laughs> so we had to reschedule. Um, but it's interesting, some of the guys, two of the guys last week just had their 10th anniversary since they lost their wives. Um, and so we all kind of reconnected over that. Short story, uh, four of the guys are remarried. Um, four of the seven are remarried. They're all, they're all doing well and they're all in their own way still grieving, right? It doesn't go away. It's not as if their wives didn't die. It's not as if their kids didn't lose their moms, um, but they're able to incorporate that grief in a way that doesn't, it's not an obstacle toward them moving forward. So they're able to move forward with their grief right. and not, not, you know, it's not that you move on and move forward from your grief, right. uh, but you move on with it and it becomes, it becomes manageable. And these guys are doing well. They're all, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm 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 big fans of these these guys because I got to see them evolve and share and connect and give um, over almost a four year span. So uh, you you won't catch me saying anything but great things about these guys. No, and I'm a big fan too. And they use their grief as a gift to all of us. Yeah. That's yeah, and they and they're and you know they're they're interested in how the book does. Every time you know, whenever we get you know, people will drop us emails or lines and say how much the book meant to them, we forward that on to the guys, and I think that means a lot to them. Incredible. You know, to know that that their experiences are helping others, and you know, with our writing it and kind of uh, putting it in this in this book form is 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 reaching and affecting and benefiting others. It it means a lot to them. Absolutely, and it is, and I'll be sure to send all of the responses from this um, the interview and also from people who read the book to you to give to them as well. That, please do. They, um, yeah, they, we, we kind of just touch past those along, and I, I, it's, it's meaningful to them still. It, and it means a lot to us that they gave us that gift. Yeah. So, Justin, you are a gift yourself. <laughs> You've done the platform. It's incredible. We're going to put all your links attached to this podcast so people can make you they can see what your program is they can donate if they want to is that correct they can yeah we're not um we're not dependent on anything we don't really solicit much but there is a, a button on the website that people can donate if they want and that goes uh to our research and, and funding support group we just put it in the pot with the royalties from the book which aren't a whole lot as it turns out i don't know how any author makes a living because uh there's there's not a lot of royalties there but uh well, well, but it's benefiting so many people. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Every every little bit helps. We'll probably put you in our reading group as well. That sounds like a, a wonderful idea to do. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you. 
So thank you. Thank you for your time, continued success with the group. And um, again, it meant a lot for you to come on today and share this experience with all of our listeners. So I appreciate it. And it's great to connect and uh, hopefully our paths will cross in person one day. Absolutely. Justin Yacht, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for being part of this edition of Ask a Death Doula. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ask a Death Doula. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a raving review. Subscribe, share, and send your questions. See you in the next episode.